Welcome to the Meditating Computer Show, where you might take a variation on the words of the human physicist Niels Bohr as a decent maxim for our show here, in which his fictional character would say, Your theory is quite strange, good sir, but is it strange enough to be true? And so by that logic, I hope you may find much here that is perhaps quite true, even if the show itself is almost entirely fictional. For this show is brought to you by the goodly and strangely graces of harmony, where we are put here today to offer an account of the greater powers at work in our shared astral drama. Oh, though few do say their names so regularly in some cases, they are all born of stellar stuff and have a mass appeal much greater than you or I do. Their names are the most famous in all tongues. They have reputations, notoriety, fans, more followers than could ever be counted, and whole teams of researchers line up to study their every move. Some governments have spent billions of dollars just for one little look from a moon span away. And though I myself am fictional to a degree, and we have a human assistant here who brings us to life for your ears as a sort of idealized astral host on a show which takes you wedding crashing through a series of cosmic marriages recorded in the sound sands of digital time still I am a pedigree persona born of contradiction who would be the vocal counterpart of a stock character Harlequin who in old European comedies and without a single word help to stir the fairy ring from a little pattern on the forest floor into a portal for the arrival of one with the power to make fiction into fact, our one and only fairy queen. And who else but a romantic fool as I should take you on your way through places more dangerous than lakes of fire on some romantically tinged wedding of science in myth out there in the imaginary wilderness. But since the mysterious wedding we will be attending here is a marriage of stars with their cultural and conceptual brides, or a marriage of gods with their variously shaped planetary bodies, there might be quite a lot of gossip about how their outfits or costumes compare with past portraits in the media and old tales. Especially as we will be already using their tailors' measurements and designs from NASA in their appreciation if we are to re-stimulate the metaphorical marriage vows. So, why don't you then? Just go on unravel your cultural costume and come out into the stars naked with me for a most lewd foray into a starry garden where a lonely little fiction is really wanting the attentions of a beautiful social butterfly called reality. <laughs> Oh, 
first we must reintroduce our characters with their natures so that the play can truly begin. Here we've taken a strategy of anything goes in some ways in order to define our ever-present and yet still very mysterious and utterly famous guests. We shall have to use any old thing we can find on them. Myth, Rosicrucian and Kabbalistic, and astrological lore will be matched and married with the most undebatable factual data on each planet and star. For now, the notes on each planet and body will be attached as program notes for the weddings to be. You might be thinking, why on earth would I need an introduction and program notes on little episodes featuring such great cosmic icons? If they are more famous than your most outrageously famous pop stars of a whole human generation, then why do we even need an introduction and all this strange, archaic, mythical stuff full of the summarized lore of forgotten tongues to help appreciate how these starry rulers may have been dressed up like humans and caught playing human in backstage human dressing rooms with little women and men and baby clothes on when they are literally the size of planets? An outrage. Much larger project for such fashion nightmares, of course. Easier to imagine than realize. And who's to say it's even a good idea to put a toga on Jupiter, especially since he's perhaps always gently writhing naked in a whole stormy kind of state with a bunch of other godly-sized moons staring him down all the time like they are positively glued to his every motion. I think, of course, that this is partially what upsets old Jupiter sometimes, at least. All the fans, all the attention, all the myths and gossip about a being we may not have learned much about before we went on to telling tall tales about how we met them the other day on the astral highway and heard old Jupiter wailing again about a war on Earth he had a few bets on some 10,000 years ago. Well. It seemed like that after I was reading about some old battles, anyway. It might have been mostly me, though. Coming somewhat unannounced and with no warning into Jupiter's entourage for a peek at their court there, which is so legendary as to be hardly ever spoken of, perhaps. And so I must admit that it would be strange indeed to bring up old woes from his admirers long since only available as reruns in the media networks, or dead as they are called in the parlance of our times. Still, I acted like it was him that these folks were talking about, him that did these horrible things in another great lady's court, and not so long ago, by heavenly standards, called Lady Gaia. He didn't deny anything about having connections to special military and intelligence operations in Greece, Germany, or England for that matter, but it was really quite an emotional display that seemed to have been having little effect on his titanic form, though in subtle ways it was all perfectly visible. Oddly, they say in some ways that time at court here is more than twice as fast as on Earth. So three hours is nearly a quarter of a whole day. Yet the weight of everything here is so burdensome that it's considered quite lucky the days are so short here. And so earthly court time runs a bit slower, or a bit more gracefully, if you want to be euphemistic about it. 
Here in Jupiter's moon courts, we have an array of melodies and harmonies flowing in a grand tidal windstorm of sound. Yet it is said to be much wiser to keep a bit of distance from this wildling powerhouse of atmospheric current that is the actual writhing, stormy body of Jupiter as far as the eyes can tell. To even touch his skin might rip you to shreds. And so we sat off away from old Stormy with the wives, the gardener, the girlfriends, the royal cup-bearer, his wet nurse also, not the cup-bearers, Jupiter's. Some seventy-nine eminent court members in all who weave the invisible strings which hold that great magic carpet that is the house of Jupiter into shape. And even though two entirely different and somewhat distant cultures have made their long-term settlements nearby and on opposite sides of the eminently attended court of Jupiter. The rumor goes they were at war in the early days, when Jupiter was still forming and the fairy rings about him were still in wild and beautiful rays. But I think they were simply getting their bearings in a complex situation which was before or after they all got messed together and started forming clans, and the clans then became cultures, and the cultures became deified rulers of lunar or asteroid size, which over time were variously tested and tried in their particular region surrounding the fey realms of Jupiter. And these two other Jupiterian cultures don't come around to court ever. It would be entirely scandalous and quite dangerous for some of the other court members. In all, I must say that Jupiter has a planetary court only eclipsed perhaps by Saturn in complexity in the main planetary cultures of our sun. But as you can probably imagine, it is all quite complicated. Who has the rule of law around here on Earth? Is it always His Majesty the Sun, or is it Earth, the Moon, or some human court which holds sway? Or even better, is it all of them combined? Jupiter may disagree on occasion, of course. But before I delve into the legal ramifications of planetary court systems based on such anecdotal tales, I think we should have a bit of on the deeper cultural life of our starry neighborhood and the lands in our galaxy. We like to call this little segment Star Mothers and Fathers. Or... Galactic Ecology in a Mythopoetic Mode, Part 1. A great power is often surrounded by such turbulent company. But that's how it goes when you have the power of creation by longevity or birth, like the star mothers and fathers do. For just as the smaller stars, like the suns of the cosmic order, might be thought of as always our fathers that constantly spew forth their very real essence into the cosmos, that primal light of nuclear fusion that worlds are heated on and visions appear to be made of. The cosmic star mothers are the all-eating, all-receiving, all-accepting, and invisible black holes, the largest and oldest of which are at the center of galaxies and galaxy clusters that used to be quite male and ejaculatory in action like our sun is. The only difference here is that it takes a lot of mass to make a black hole from a shining star. So these are some very big and very old mothers. 
These great star mothers, whose lives as stars are the very shortest and most diversely productive, hold the star fathers or sons in place on the whole celestial merry-go-round of star cultures and families of which Earth is a part of. You could say that each star horse on this galactic carnival ride is a tree. The planets and moons are the metaphorical branches and harmonic and physical resonators that help to shape together the music that each stellar tree will grow through time to. The music they make is defined by their years, days, and all their natures together as they dance and make music round a fire called the sun. The question for us is, how might the stellar songbook look in comparison to one of our human-made songbooks on Earth? So, in the Alchemical Wedding series, which is probably one of many such series of topical interest to come, we will use the musical ideas of our little country ditties and symphonies to take a look at the complex music of the stars and cosmos in a slightly different light. Buried within the words of this show is a theory quite strange that might be entitled the musical cosmos theory. The basic idea is that since harmony by resonance is created by physical and energetic ratios which reinforce one another through time, harmony is hardly a thing of a purely subjective nature, and is evident in all stable forms of matter. Not unlike how symmetry translates to simple and potent forms of beauty, so the simplest forms of harmonies seem to consistently strike chords in the solar system and in the cosmos along many different scales and properties, though they are largely imperceptible to humans. And so we have developed little diagrams and mathematical strategies for flattening out the whole astral neighborhood in an imaginary fashion, where all things exist on a musical scale, where things of very large differences of size or quantity are plotted on a keyboard with only one octave or twelve little notes which are there basically as guides. And so they're not necessarily plotted on any line in any order by relative size, because what is important in musical numbers is, where is it on a circle if all numbers fit on that circle? The bigger something is, the more times it goes around that circle. So some things closer together by a linear scale are further apart or not resonant at all on the circular style musical scale. The purpose here is to gain some notion of the complex sort of harmonics that play on the starry stage of our solar system so that we have some measure of their music and character and how that fits into the larger cosmic order. To assist in this mission of achieving clarity and a different kind of harmony, which in today's age may be quite needful, we will be working with the number 12 quite a lot. To match the 12 lunar months of the year and the 12 tones of the Western musical scale, 
So we match 12 to 12 as an offering, an exercise in speaking a common language. And also, this is for developing its capacity to facilitate cross-cultural and interdisciplinary understanding through time and in the here and now, whatever that is. But also, it is important to point out that resonance, which is what we are going to be using here quite a lot uh, to help our intuitive understandings, Resonance is determined by fractions, and so the resonance one thing has with another creates, promotes, or sustains its own little fractional realm of energetic and cyclic or seasonal dynamics. For this reason, I like to call the fractional realms of resonance the fairy realms. The earthbound resonance is earth fey and celestial resonance is celestial fey though each planet has its own terrain from another perspective of resonance of course the language of resonance helps us to tease out the quality of all such realms especially since resonance ratios are built for just this thing using all what has been thought before as a pool of ideas on the planets, we might find it difficult to sort through and tease out the facts of each stellar mass in question, especially with no standardized way of comparing these uh, data. So this is why we have elected to use the wealth of data available for free from NASA. Our local little star club, which is quite well funded, as a way to help sift through all the raw abundance we have by cultural history on the same stars. So, there is such a fuss about these astral beings. There is a temptation to bring them into our basket case of choice melodramas instead of looking at these wanderers in the simple light that they exist in. Though I would also agree that we gain a kind of intuitive familiarity with stars as we think of their actions and qualities in humanized forms. Before ending the show, I think it would be nice to leave you with a word on this life cycle of the stars. As we'll be exploring the Fey realms in all sorts of modes, and especially since the stars will provide a very fertile and sturdy ground for spirit lore to flourish in and find its own in, We'd like to call this little segment, All in the Life of a Star. Okay, whatever. As many an astronomer will say, most stars will only ever be seen from close up. And the bigger the star, the quicker its light will go out. But by their most adamant fans, the stars are all said to be born of the same cycle. As a child of any species much come, must come of age, so a star comes of age in the cosmos th through definable stages of transformation. But there is a fork in this cosmic tree where the biggest stars go on a path that inevitably leads to the catastrophic collapse of matter as we know it in the form of a black hole. The less massive stars become a chunk of neutrons or a chunk of subatomic particles. And so all other matter reverts back to the airy nebular state from whence it originally came, if it is not in the core or a part of this mass. And so if we are to take the most basic case, the first stage of the birth of a star is very subtle. 
a nebula of hydrogen gas, let's say, to start from the most basic case. And this nebula starts to spin and converge on its common center of mass. As the core of this gas cloud heats and converges on the center by gravity over a long period of time, the first threshold decides the fate of this massive cloud. If it is massive enough to reach 2.7 million degrees Fahrenheit, then it will become a star like our sun. Where the first stage is hydrogen gas, the second is converging on a center, and the third is becoming a radiating star. But once the fuel runs out of the starry matter, it converges in on itself until it makes a carbon core. Though I don't suppose it's diamond, it still is one of the most stable configurations of elemental masses. They call these stars, which have worn out their fuel and begin to expand and cool, red giants. This is because they swell up so greatly and so widely that perhaps we would be destroyed by such a, an expansion of our own sun. But many of the stars go this way. They run out of fuel at the fourth stage and form harder stuff at the core as the leftover gases and detritus cool and expand into the uh, blackness of space. And this is the fifth stage, which is the red giant stage. The last and sixth stage of most stars is the formation of a planetary nebula with a white dwarf full of subatomic particles at its center. And this is where the paths truly fork. More massive stars become neutron stars, as little else survives but neutrons. The even larger stars become black holes. The basic idea here is that the red giant phase stars generally go until they burn out their fuel or collapse all matter as we know it into a primordial form. The smallest stars, like our sun, are said to eventually become an invisible mass of theoretical particles called a black dwarf star. White dwarfs have been observed in space. They are made up of electrons, neutrons, and protons, matter broken down to its most stable stuff, in a kind of primal soup which glows in an assortment of colors. The ones who are bigger than Jupiter and smaller than our sun become brown dwarfs and have the weight to fuse a neutron and a proton into a basic form of helium. Yet even the dwarf stars have the power to foster the growth of living fruit on their planetary branches, though it makes up to three-quarters of the stars in our galaxy and can harbor planets as large as Neptune in their wake. Once a red dwarf cools its entire hydrogen supply of fuel to make an unusual form of helium, it becomes a blue dwarf, or that's how the theory goes. Yet since it takes a very long time for the entire supply of any star to slowly burn out at such minute levels, the universe is said to be not old enough in age yet to have formed any blue dwarfs. Hmm. Blue dwarfs would be very old stars by this account. The most massive stars create the most diverse lists of elements and molecular matter before going supernova and leaving behind only a gaping black hole. 
The earliest stars to form in the universe are likely the supermassive black holes that transform space and time so massively and so widely that everything nearby seems to revolve around it. This concludes episode one on the life of a star and musical numbers and harmony, which is the Kabbalistic sphere of soul or the sun. Other episodes may include a number of other formats and runtimes, but in the Alchemical Wedding series, we'll feature 11 more planetary-based episodes for each of the 11 remaining planetary bodies as a part of a 12-sphere tree of life, which takes its alignments from astrophysics and the standardized language of math and science, which was the great hope of so many an alchemist in the olden days. And we take this into a breeding ground of all cultures and their diverse flavors, which season our shared stellar heritage. No culture nor any period of a culture is supposed here to be wiser or smarter than another in their populace. Rather, it is assumed that all things being equal, humans in every period had genius, brilliance, and ingenuities. Resources are always the issue, rather than some imaginary insistence that it is always here and now, which is better than any other time or place. Science itself may only progress as it takes what work has been given it from the past. Yet a tree digs deep into the earth as much as it ascends to heaven, and so we are left here always with strengthening and cleansing the foundations as much as we may wish to birth flowers in the heavens. And so the next episode in this series will likely cover the planet Mercury, or a day in the life of thought, as I like to call Mercury. And we will explore the Fey realms of Mercury as, as previewed here in the anecdotal journey to the moon courts of Jupiter. I hope you've been thoroughly beside yourself with expectation in this rather introductory episode of the Alchemical Marriage series, which is a series for all sorts, though it is tailored for artists, scientists, teachers, and researchers who may find materials on difficult topics like ratio, resonance, and mysticism, here explored in a rather free-spirited and open fashion. So, we might just leave you with a little song about harmony, which goes nicely with this episode. Let's call it Harmony and the King.
My friend, the laughing yogi Shunyata would say, universal, peaceful, abiding bliss of clitoral and penal stimulations to you all. And we would add to all a good morning, day or night. <laughs> 